want to welcome you to our session uh, focused on what kids should know. Uh, my name is Gary Huggins. I run the uh, Commission on No Child Left Behind at the Aspen Institute. And I want to introduce you to your moderator who will uh, introduce this uh, great panel that we have together uh, today. Uh, David Leonhardt is the economics columnist at the New York Times, also writes for the New York Times uh, Magazine, previously at uh, Business Week and the Washington Post. And as I was just saying to David, I would love to learn more about the uh, sports column he began called Keeping Score, which is a fascinating analytical sports column that, uh, that runs as well. So let me uh, hand it over to David, and he'll take from there. Thank you. Uh, don't give me an opening or I'll talk about sports for an hour. Um, for anyone who's curious, actually, the Netherlands held on to win. Did they? they did. Really? They did. Um, uh, I'm going to introduce this wonderful panel. They're each going to um, uh, give you some very brief thoughts about what kids should know, and then we're going to have a discussion amongst ourselves, and um, and then we're going to open it up for questions. Uh, and once we do, I'd ask that um, please identify yourself and, and also... Um, uh, please make the question that you're asking clear. <laughs> um, uh, I'll start with the introductions on the far end with Richard Broadhead, who uh, to me is Dean Broadhead. He was the Dean of Yale College when I was an undergraduate there. Uh, and uh, he actually um, has spent most of his career at Yale. Uh, he was there as an undergraduate, a graduate student. He is now, of course, the president of Duke University. Um, and in that job, he has been thinking a lot, uh, not only about undergraduate education at Duke, but also K through 12 education in Durham. Um, sitting next to President Broadhead is Katie Haycock, um, who has worked at the University of California and at the Children's Defense Fund previously. She's now the pre president of Education Trust, which I trust many people here are familiar with. It does really fabulous work with a focus on closing achievement gaps between different groups of kids. But really the goal is of, of the organization is to look at ways we can improve education generally. Um, Sitting next to Katie is, is Judith Fabian, who has worked all over the world um, at IB schools, International Baccalaureate schools, which I think are an interesting model for us to look at as we try to think about ways to, to make education more flexible. It's something that's worked in a, in a large <coughs> part of the world and has worked in the places it's been tried in many cases in this country, but it is still not really mainstream. It is not too widespread in this country. And Judith has taught in London, right? Tanzania, Germany, and... Jordan. Jordan, yes. Uh, two away from me is Mark Tucker. If you were at the Q&A with Joel Klein this morning, Joel mentioned Mark's work a number uh, of times. Um, Mark is a real leader in the school standards um, community. Um, he's currently the president of the National Center on Education and the Economy. Um, and uh, he's going to tell us about some of the, the fascinating work that, that Chancellor Klein mentioned this morning. Um, and of course, I, am, I feel sheepish even attempting to int introduce the justice. Sitting next to me is Justice O'Connor, um, who um, uh, you may not believe this, but uh, she did not go to Harvard and was still a Supreme Court justice. I know. <laughs> it's not allowed anymore, but back in That's her right. day, it's it was. It's a shrinking number. <laughs> Um, in my household, though, she is just as famous for being the subject of a book called Meet My Grandmother, She's a Supreme Court Justice, uh, <laughs> co-written by Courtney O'Connor that my yeah. six- and seven-year-old quite yeah. enjoy. Good. Um, so we're going to go in reverse order with opening remarks, starting with the justice, and then we'll, uh, we'll open it up from there. Thank you all for joining us. Well, thank you. I don't know how this economist got to be with this panel. I, <laughs> I started asking him, well, now you tell us what's your role in education. So we're going to find that out, too. Before Fair enough. We're and I'm curious about the title. What should kids know? Now, I don't know who we're including in kids, but I'll tell you what my focus has been lately. And so these are the kids... I'm thinking about middle schoolers. Now, why middle schoolers? Because those are the years, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, when the light bulb turns on up here, if it's going to, and they are eager and ready to learn and capable of it. And they're absolutely wonderful to work with. They're not the spoiled teenagers of high school. And they're certainly not college material. But here they are, just at the perfect age to learn and to get things implanted that will just help them always. So I like middle schoolers. And I have been working on developing 
a website program for middle schoolers to teach them how our government works. Why? Because I think young people of any age, but starting as early as middle school, need to know how our government functions. What is our constitution? What are those Bill of Rights? What are their rights? How do they defend them? What do the courts do? This is what I want these young people to understand from right then and there, and they'll be able to breeze through the rest of this stuff. So I'm focused on middle school, and I want them to know how our government works and why and how they're going to be part of it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so, David, I'm going to make a liar out of you. I, I wasn't planning to talk about what Joel was talking about this morning. I, that's completely that fair. Um, I actually took the title of this, um, this uh, session seriously, and I made a set of notes to myself about what we need to know and why we need to know it. Uh, to me, the, 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 the top level hasn't changed in centuries, literally. The first purpose is citizenship. It has to be. Thomas Jefferson was right when he said there was no nation which is free and <coughs> ignorant at the same time. The second that I have thought for a very long time has to do with art and music and literature because that gets to the heart of the human experience. What I want to talk about is the third purpose, which, which is really to, to enable young people to go into the workforce able to earn a good living for their family and as a collectivity for the country as a whole. And there I think things have changed a lot and in one very surprising way changed not at all. Uh, and let me just explain how, why I think they've changed a lot. Uh, in the first instance, about 20 years ago, this country realized that there were people on the other side of the world with very low skills who, for the first time in the history of the United States, were competing with people in the United States who had very low skills. In South Korea, they were making one-tenth of what our low-skilled people made at the time. In, in China, they were making one-one-hundredth of what low-skilled workers in the United States made. A lot of us said at that time, no problem. We'll leave the low-skilled work to the folks in these other countries who don't charge much for their work, and we will do the high-value-added work. What we've discovered really in the last five, six, or seven years is that there are now growing and large numbers of people in poor countries who have very high skills, very high skills, who are now competing with people in the United States with high skills, mm -hmm. and they're offering their services at, guess what, much lower rates. Mm -hmm. The same thing is true of people with intermediate skills. Any half-baked economist will tell you, never mind the ones who know a lot more, that if all those people are willing to offer skills at all those levels at lower prices than us, the only way we can compete, high skills, low skills, and middle skills, is to lower the price of our labor until it matches theirs. Unfortunately for us, it has a long way to go down before it comes into equilibrium with the ones coming up. So, and by the way, I'm not talking about the future, I'm talking about now and in the past. Average real wages in the United States have been going down in recent years, in good times and in bad, and that's why. So the question that we've asked ourselves in our organization is, who is going to pay Americans the kinds of wages they're making now in the face of the situation I just described? The question is not how we can improve our standard of living. The question is how we can hang on to it. And the answer that we've basically come up with is pretty simple, actually. We have to make things that the rest of the world wants so badly and can get nowhere else that they're willing to pay monopoly prices for them. If you think about Apple, that's exactly what it does. It's exactly what it does, and Apple's not alone. The companies that are sponsoring this event are very like Apple in that respect. It's not just the work of technologists in the corner of some building. You're talking about people who are defining the state of the art in marketing, in production, in sales, in everything they do. They are way out on the edge, worldwide. The only way we're gonna be able to hang on to our standard of living is by having lots and lots of companies like Apple in every major industry in which we choose to compete. For those companies, price is no object when it comes to hiring people. They hire globally. And they will go globally where they have to go to get them. And they will put the work where they can find the people. We have to offer the people, or they will go elsewhere. Price is no object. That means they'll pay them a lot. So what are they looking for? They're, working, they're looking for people who are as well-educated in a conventional sense as the best in the world. And, in addition, 
are the most creative and the most innovative because their raison d'etre is being way ahead of the rest of the pack. In fact, inventing the future in everything that they do. So you would think that what this means is we need to, we need to teach our kids the 21st century skills. And in fact, among educators these days, there is a great deal of talk about the 21st century skills. I actually think almost all of it is just plain hogwash. If you think about what most of those kids actually need when you talk to the people who are employing them, they need to think well, really well. They need to speak intelligently. They need to write well. They need to be able to find trustworthy information and make sense of it. They need to argue coherently and persuasively and logically. What I have just defined are the main elements of what we used to call rhetoric. Rhetoric was a course in the <laughs> curriculum from about Roman times forward to about 40 years ago, and then it left our curriculum. It was the key part of the curriculum at Eton and Harrow and the other great English public schools at the end of the 19th century. In addition to that, I would say we need to worry about design in the engineering sense. We need to worry about design in the art sense. We need kids to be able to do basic math. We need very much to reinstate an interest in craft. There's a wonderful book written about this. I'm sure many of you have read. Uh, uh, it, it, but the, the point here is that we are, people are, people who make things. Got it. Um, we need technology literacy, but it's actually not terribly important. We certainly need science. We need science as a way of knowing. We need kids to understand the big ideas in science. And we need a, desperately for kids to have a firm grasp of the underlying conceptual structures that science offers us. Here's the second big bundle. And this is what was drilled into 1890s Eaton and Harrow students. It's character. It is about the rewards of expertise. It is about hard work. It is about persistence. It is about the importance of practice. It is about a sense of fair play. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It's how you played the game. Actually, it mattered very much how that, whether they won or lost. But they cared a lot about how you won. It is about service, a very big value at Eaton and Harrow. It is about leadership. It is about being a team player. Those are all things that are in, if you talk to industrial leaders today, they are looking for. That is what it was about in Eaton and Harrod. It is not about 21st century skills. What it is about is taking an ideal of education that was for a very narrow segment of the creme de la creme in 1890 and giving that to everybody. That's the revolution. It's not the content. It's the ideal about who it goes to. That, I think, is what the next revolution really needs to be about. It's interesting uh, coming from the UK to be hearing about Harrow and Eaton and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and some remarkable things came out of that, but of course with the background of colonialism um, and the perspective that I'm coming from is very much one of international education. But I, before I get on to what the IB stands for, I, I, I have to share with you a, um, <clears throat> a quotation. I arrived late last night and I walked this morning down that path to register. And I was walking back and thinking through my notes and lofty thoughts about what children should know in education. And then I came across Oscar Wilde, <coughs> who has the wonderful habit of bringing us all down to earth with a great big thump. Um, but I think in this case, he was actually quite prescient. And it just shows, it's a very small quotation. Some of you may have seen it. It was on one of the banners there. And he said, education is admirable. But it is worth remembering from time to time that nothing that is worth knowing can be taught. And so you think, okay, fine. <laughs> That's where we come from. 
It is an extreme view, as, of course, Oscar Wilde always took. But I think he was prescient in the, in the sense of understanding that what is best understood will come not from being taught necessarily, but from students making meaning, from students investigating, uh, inquiring, and making meaning for themselves. And this is what we heard a lot of this morning in the session with Connie Yowell and Joe Klein. In the IB, we do develop programs. I'm sure Oscar Wilde would have disapproved thoroughly. Um, but our programs are based, are, international, are about international education. They are including, they include a lot of the skills that Mark talked about, but I think the most fundamental idea, philosophy behind the IB programs is that of international mindedness. It's the developing of the sort of mind that understands culture, that understands where each of us come from, our own backgrounds, our own influences, in our own countries, in our own broader cultures, but also understanding, and I take a, a line from our mission statement, that others with their differences can also be right. That there are other ways of thinking, other ways of being, and that is at the core of, of an IB education. Additionally, we approach education in a very holistic way. Our programs, we think, we hope, we aim to make our programs broad and balanced, that <coughs> um, they deal with the whole child, the affective, the cognitive, the social, the emotional. There is a distinct emphasis on languages, on language development, I should say, rather than languages these days. All our students have to take a minimum of two languages. We aim to develop students who are balanced, who study all the major disciplines, who have an opportunity to look at things through interdisciplinary lenses, who can work collaboratively in teams, but who can also work independently. Another key component of our programs is our dependence as an organization on the teachers that teach our programs. We are, to a very large extent, dependent on the creative professionalism of teachers, and that's why teachers like to teach IB programs. It is a key factor, it is a key factor in the development of the curriculum. I liked what the Justice said about middle school children. They're my favorites as well. And in our middle school, prog middle school program, middle years program, which runs from 11 to 16, the, we provide only a curriculum framework and it is the teachers that develop the curriculum. <coughs> our assessment is driven largely by the principles of teaching and learning, not wholly. It would be better if it was driven more so, but we are, to a certain extent, at the mercy of university entrance and different national systems. But we try to ensure that our assessment is driven by the, base, the essential principles of teaching and learning. Our focus has been, since the start of the organization in 1968, on the developing of minds well-formed as opposed to minds well-stuffed. And that's an actual quotation from Alec Peterson um, back in 1981, I think, and has guided our education since. And I think I'll stop there. All right. Uh, well, I expect David knows this, but by way of introduction, I will be honest with, the, uh, with all the rest of you about this. And that is that I bring to this panel not so much a set of firm convictions about what exactly um, our kids should uh, learn, what they should know and be able to do, what works of literature they should all be exposed to, even what facts about government they should understand. As I do a way of thinking um, about this question and frankly many other questions in American education, it goes something like this. Um, our country is, as I hardly need to tell anybody in this room, very much a work in progress. We have a wonderful set of ideals, but we frequently do not live up to them. And sadly, nowhere is there more 
is that phenomenon more evident than it is in the way we educate our children. Um, basically, what we do in this country is very simple. We take the kids who, because of poverty or other life circumstances, come to school with less, and we turn around and give them less in school, too. They get less in the way of a rigorous and rich curriculum. They get less in the way of experienced and well-trained teachers. We expect less of them, and then when they don't perform so well, we have the wonderful good fortune of simply blaming it on them, their race, their culture, their parents, their poverty, you name it. Turning that around is more important to our national future than anything else, but here's the rub. You can't effectively turn that around unless you have agreement on what it is kids need to learn. Because otherwise, what happens is what's happened in American schools for generations after generation. And that is, teachers and schools take kids in wherever they come, and then they take them only as far as they think their abilities or life circumstances will support. That's what we have to change, and that's why common standards are hugely important. Uh, okay, I get to speak one of my fifths, uh, and the question was, what should kids know? I have a short answer, and then I'll make it a little longer. The short answer is, kids should know more. <laughs> and by that I mean, what, and by that I don't just mean there's a long list that they should get to the end of. I mean, whatever any kid knows on any day, what they now need to know is more. Uh, because it's the nature of knowledge that we're never at the end of it. It's not as if you've packed grandmother's trunk and now you're ready, uh, uh, equipped for life. Uh, that it seems to me that if education hasn't given you the, the desire to use your mind to keep bringing in more understanding, to keep uh, uh, asking questions and helping the world uh, provide you the material to answer them, that in some some sense, education hasn't given you the fundamental gift of education, which is the appreciation that our species has the capacity to use its mind to understand the world, to criticize our own understandings of the world, to expand our understandings of the world, and to keep in motion at that all the way through. Uh, so it seems to me what kids should know is more, and what they really should know is that what they most want and need to do is keep moving forward uh, with, with their mind into the world. Uh, I look at, uh, I have been fascinated today to speak to the many people who work in K through 12 education, which has now become, uh, who could have envisioned this? Even four or five years ago, I think it would have been hard to envision that we've come to a moment where that most hopeless of American subjects has now come to seem uh, a place of optimism, a place of possibility, a place of experimentation. You know, the report called A Nation at Risk came out in 1983, but it was at least 20 years after that uh, when it seemed to me most of us lived with the contradiction, the sense that K through 12 education is fundamentally never going to change, uh, so the nation may or may not be at risk, but it's not going to be less at risk thanks to any changes there. Uh, but now, actually, thanks to lots of things together, experiments that people did first in small numbers that now have, ca have, have caught on, uh, I think partly the kind of crisis mentality about competitiveness that has made people take education more seriously as an instrument of national policy. And then I think a little what Katie says, you know, you hear people say, and I do think it's something that lodges in the mind, which is that education is the new frontier of civil rights, uh, that this is the new place of, of inequality. It's the place where differences of life are made the way they used to be made by, uh, by race or gender or something of that sort. Uh, and I'd have to say I know it. About one block from the Duke campus is an elementary school uh, that Duke does a lot of work with. And once when I went there, I was told by the principal that some of the students coming, uh, they, they, they figure out how many hours have kids' parents read to them before they come to kindergarten. And they have a number for which the answer is more than 500 hours. They don't measure it precisely beyond that. But they have other students for whom the number is less than 10 hours in five years of life. Uh, these are profound inequalities. Uh, and to ask an institution later on to come and repair these inequalities, uh, really, it, it is an extraordinary thing. Uh, but it seems to me now there is a seriousness and also a willingness to experiment and even a sense of urgency about experiment that makes me feel hopeful uh, that these subjects can now be addressed. Witness the fact that the National Governors Association uh, has moved in behind this idea of standards uh, and they're actually not uninteresting standards. Well, the trouble with most standards is you wouldn't want to only know that much. I mean, usually standards are actually very low-level, low boring, boilerplate things. These are very progressive, interesting standards that have been put out there. <laughs> if we had a school system that taught kids to those standards, you would have a very fortunate nation. 
Let me say a word about universities. One of the, you know, one of the things about education, educators don't mean it to, but education is a very inertia-ridden enterprise. Uh, why, were we, why was I taught third grade the way I was taught it? I know the answer, because that's the way third grade was taught. Uh, and actually, the answer to many questions at schools is, because that's the way we do it. Uh, now, you like middle schoolers, I like college students. Uh, uh, I regard them as kids, too. Uh, and uh, let's extend our definition of kids endlessly out to include many who are in this room, right? Okay. Uh, uh, even colleges, you know, college is not the problem in America. Everybody still wants to go to American universities if they can. They're regarded as wonders of dynamism, creativity, uh, curiosity-driven places. Uh, but for all that, the great universities still have a great weight of inertia that I think we are becoming newly self-conscious in. Uh, some years back, it became the habit uh, for people to be trained as faculty members in universities by exiting the world of general knowledge and learning some one thing very, very deeply. And then, since we probably rightly believe that faculty should decide the substance of education, you then ask a, a group of highly specialized people to decide what education should look like. You know this from, from when you went to college. You know it from looking in any college catalog. A college uh, program of study is a group of lists of departments the, the specializations, and then within them, all the courses in all the subspecializations. That's knowledge. Uh, the trouble is, that's actually not knowledge. Uh, that, that's a model of knowledge that I think we are probably working to the end of the usefulness of. Uh, and I only want to say, uh, you, when you deal with college students, that's not the way they want to know. They don't want to know only the, uh, uh, everything that is in box number one or everything that isn't in box number two. Uh, and what I see everywhere on my campus uh, is anytime you throw out a, a, a place where lots of subjects can be brought together because all of them are needed to help solve a problem, not an intellectual problem, but a real human problem, that all of a sudden everyone becomes excited uh, at the idea of drawing things together, making things feed on each other, making things build on each other, so people can now come up with new answers to problems that they're just in the act of helping to define in some, in some cases. Uh, I think of Haiti this past year. Uh, the minute that the, uh, that the Haitian earthquake uh, uh, came about, the Duke campus all of a sudden discovered people in the history department had taught the history of Haiti. People in anthropology had worked in uh, Haitian culture all these years. People in the religion department had worked on Haitian religions. Uh, people in our engineering department had worked on the aftermath of natural, national disasters. We have a big medical school. Lots of people actually had clinics in Haiti, uh, and Paul Farmer is one of our uh, alums, and he is, I think, Mr. Haiti in some, uh, in some way. What was so interesting to me is all these people whose professional uh, identities sorted them out into separate boxes, all of a sudden you just find coming together and all kinds of people who want to learn about Haiti, but they don't want to learn about it abstractly as a set of separate disciplines. They want to learn how to bring these disciplines together to help you get some leverage on an actual human problem that's out there. Uh, you'll find in universities in the world of energy. Uh, we announced a program in energy studies. A year later, you have 100 students in this program. Uh, they'll study the engineering, and energy is also an economic issue. They'll study the economics, it's also a policy, policy issue. They'll study the policy, but what they really want is to pull all these things together uh, to get a kind of multi-sided leverage on uh, uh, the problems that they know will be real ones in their generation. Uh, for me, you know, uh, uh, I think one of the things we've agreed on this panel, uh, partly education is deciding how do we hand on the human heritage. You don't want to lose it, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, it partly is thinking, what's the world of the future going to look like, and how can you help young people now develop the mental powers, develop the muscle groups that will enable them to be efficacious in the life of their time? Uh, and I'd have to say my whole career as an educator, as someone who was trained in a specialty and has now lived uh, to, uh, in some sense, move beyond that, uh, is that the education of the future is going to be as much about connection as the former, former higher education was about disconnection or separation of fields. It's going to be about training people in versatility, training people to bring groups of uh, uh, worlds of knowledge together in opportunistic ways in face of problems that continue to change their shape day by day. Uh, people who can deal with that kind of uh, reality in an intelligent way are going to be helpful to us all, and I don't fear any nation that's going to have a, uh, a large supply of those people. Uh, people who can't do that are going to be limited just to that extent. Thank you, everyone. Um, I want to start by, by, by thinking for a minute about old-fashioned skills. 
there are all kinds of things that one could make an argument kids don't need to know how to do today because they're carrying something in their pocket that can do it for them within seconds, right? Um, spell. And, and, and spell. No, and, and that's absolutely on the list. And so I'd, I'd love to hear some thoughts from you all about which of these old-fashioned skills um, we do want to make sure kids are still learning. So spell goes on the list. I'm Writing music goes on the list. Um, uh, Reading, should kids, writing, and arithmetic, right? That it, was what they started with. Is it important that, to you that kids know how to read books? Or Absolutely. is reading on the screen just as good? Well, I don't care how they read. You it. don't care how they read? No. Okay. Do you Gotta all agree read. with that? Do you all agree that you don't care if they can read, if they read paper books? You know, humans have this, uh, this gift of language, and we have spoken language, and then later we invented written language, and it is the most powerful technology ever invented, uh, but it has had changing modalities. Uh, and so you have manuscript culture, you have tablet culture, uh, you have book culture, now we have video culture, and who knows what will soon come along to supersede it. I don't care so much about what device people learn to read on. I, I, I will always like books, just as I will always like physical papers, but that's just me. Thank you. you. Know? Monks would probably have said, I, I'll always like manuscripts. So David, um, I, to me the question comes totally out of the blue. The, the, the evidence is that a majority of American kids go through elementary, middle, and high school and never read a complete book of any kind on any medium of nonfiction. That's right. So, uh, you know, I mean, in effect, get real. I don't care whether it's on the screen. I don't care whether it's a physical book. Our kids are not reading. They are not reading. They are asked to read fiction because that's what English teachers teach. They are not asked to read nonfiction, which is what they'll need for the rest of their lives. Our kids are not asked to write because on the test that they take for which teachers are held accountable, the amount that they have to write is a few sentences. So they are not asked to write. It's no mystery that they arrive at the workplace and at your university unable to write because nobody's ever asked them to write. So I, 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 the basics here are pretty clear, I think. The argument against, and I'm not even sure I buy it, but the argument against screen reading is that it is actually qualitatively different from book reading. It is. That when you're reading on a screen, there's an ad here, there's something there, um, and that more and more that, 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 someone, uh, that a 12-year-old who sits down to read something on the screen, even if it's a book, is going to be less likely to finish that than if it were a good old-fashioned one. That's probably true, and I think anybody... Anybody who tries to read an entire 300-page book of on a screen will drive themselves crazy. Right. It won't happen. Although I'm not sure that 14-year-olds would agree with that. But well, but, but I think they're wrong. <laughs> um, what do you, Justice, what do you want middle schoolers to, to know in terms of the basics? Do you want them to know? Well, I do want, you know, we went through generations in America before we had public schools at all. And <clears throat> we didn't start out with it. There were a few of our uh, early patriots who proposed schools, but it wasn't adopted. And when it was finally adopted and proposed in the so-called antebellum area, it was to teach them how to be good citizens. And that meant they wanted our, our every generation to know how our government worked so they could be part of it and make it work. That was the idea. And they were concerned about understanding and knowing the Bible and a few other things, but reading was important. And I think writing was important uh, to the early formers of the schools. And I guess we haven't changed a whole lot. I don't know. At least for grade school, middle school, and high school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you go beyond, we're in a new world. Um, and what about the basics of, of civics? Do you think all middle schoolers should know their congressional representative and two senators and nine well, I justices? I think they need to know there are three branches of government. Did you know that in the polls taken by the Annenberg Foundation, barely one-third of Americans then, and that includes the young people, can name the three branches of government? Barely a third, much less say what they do. Now, what does that tell you about our education? That's just fundamental. It's scary. And that's why I got into this thing. They have to understand, yes, we have three branches of government, and here they are, and that's what they do. We're, we're not in there with the basics right now. Do you all have a sense that this is a problem in other countries somewhat similar to the United States, that these sorts of basic skills are a problem in Western Europe as well, are a problem in Japan? I, th I think sometimes 
Jim Fowles yesterday talked about our uh, the American notion of, of worrying about decline at all times. Um, <laughs> to what extent are these concerns that other wealthy countries also have? And to what extent should they have it if they don't? I think they are, certainly speaking from the UK, they're, they're serious concerns, but we've got a massive divide between the, the top and the bottom, basically, and, and, and similar to what Katie was saying, we have, we're disenfranchising so many of our, of our students, and that's something we're wrestling with at the moment. Um, but I think with reading and writing, I mean, it, it's, it's back to real reading and real writing. Yes. It's about reading... Yes whether it's fiction or non-fiction, because you want to find something out, because you want to know something, because you want to read. Um, it's about writing because you feel you have something to say. And I fear that the testing system that has become so prevalent in so many countries is wiping that out. I think that's a large cause of the fact that, um, that students aren't writing. Just, just as an, an, an example, we have a, a course in our diploma program called Theory of Knowledge, which is a pretty unique course, and it examines um, what we know and how we know it across the disciplines. And we're reviewing the whole assessment of it, and it's always been assessed by an essay, 1,500-word essay, really quite difficult um, look, at, look at beauty in, in aesthetics and mathematics, um, really sort of quite high-level philosophical-type essays that students have to respond to. And we're struggling with that. We can't, we, it's difficult to assess it reliably. Um, the grades vary. Should we get rid of the essay? Should we bring in something that's easier to assess? And we're back to that fundamental argument. If it's, some, if it's easy to assess and it's reliable, then you know, maybe that's the safe way of going. Thank goodness we're actually saying, no, we're going to stick with a 1,500-word essay that gives us all massive headaches every yeah. year. But that's what the course is about, and that's what we want our, our children to be doing, is, is thinking and writing and exploring ideas. And we have to build assessment around that as opposed to fitting everything we teach around assessment. I want to... We're going to open this up to questions in one second. I first want to read you all something from Alan Blinder, a former vice chairman of the Fed, who's an economist at Princeton, and get some reactions. Um, the prototypical school still resembles too much a factory built on Tayloristic principles, even though factory work now employs only about 10% of the U.S. workforce. Think about it. Students enter the building when the bell rings in the morning. They sit, mainly quietly, at their desks, which resemble workbenches, except for prescribed breaks, do well-defined assigned work, much of which is highly standardized, and then leave when the bell rings in the afternoon. This design builds in a not-too-subtle behavioral message. Um, Katie, I'll start with you. How should we be organizing schools in ways that are even potentially radically different from what we have now um, that we're not doing? Well... <clears throat> I mean, the first thing that's important to understand is that an awful lot of schools don't look like that anymore. I, most schools that I visit don't have kids in orderly desks, don't have kids droning at, at uh, dittos anymore. Um, so I want to be a little careful in mm -hmm. not sort of enshrining that in people's ideas that that's how all schools function now. But one of the things that we've got to um, get over is this kind of notion of fixing time the same for every child, no matter where they are when they come in. Um, and beginning to understand and act on the knowledge that if kids are coming in further behind, they need extra time, longer days. They need us in a very deliberate way to make the experiences richer and broader and much uh, much more focused than they are today. Um, and we need to use technology. And, and, and I, I agree with Mark in some ways that technology is not the answer here, but there are some ways in which technology can expand our ability, especially in the places where our t teacher force is very weak. I mean, one of the things we have not talked about here today is that we can talk all we want about <laughs> about what kids should know, but if their teachers don't know those things, we are in trouble. And that is, that is one of the things we struggle with as a country um, because actually even saying that out loud sounds like teacher bashing when it's, it's simply an honest statement. In fact, most teachers struggle desperately with even the content they're asked to teach kids now. 
So th- these two conversations have to be joined as well. It's a, uh, it's a striking analogy, and everybody who ever spent a bored hour in elementary school will resonate to it, I suppose. Uh, and one used to liken them to uh, penitentiaries and other kinds of uh, ne- uh, negative institutions. The truth is, there's things people have to learn at some point, and discipline is actually one of them. And among other things, the discipline of paying attention. Uh, paying attention for longer intervals than you naturally want to. <coughs> but one of the things I myself feel is, it's not unnatural for humans to uh, accept discipline for themselves. Mm-hmm. How many kids have you seen practice a jump shot for five hours uh, who were never wrote the fourth sentence of an, uh, of an essay? They're just forms of discipline. And, and I, I guess my own sense is I don't regard the discipline of knowledge as, as alien to human pleasure and human power. But I think that sometimes teaching presents it, school, school as if school is school. Uh, and so you have to find a way to teach these things so that people get the discipline of knowledge but also a sense of the pleasure of it, that, that mm-hmm. it's something in, intrinsic to them rather than something forced on, forced on them by others. Mm-hmm. I think Katie's right that a lot of schools are already quite different from that description, and I think they'll be yet more different in the future. Um, I do think testing raises a risk of us moving back in that direction, and I'm not anti-testing by any means. Yeah. Um, um, I, was, I was at um, my, loc- my elementary school, my kids' elementary school, and I was walking down the hall with one of my kids, and I asked him a question in a, in a normal voice, and he said, Shh, Dad, they're testing. And it was clear this was the highest form of anything, right? You know, you, you can't in any way get in, in the way of testing. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to start by calling on two people, um, and then after that I'll call on one, and when you're called on it means you're actually on deck. That way we don't have the awkward time when we're looking for microphones. So, so raise your hand if you're interested. We'll start here with one and in the back with two. So this gentleman right here will go first. And please introduce yourself. Thank you. I'm, I'm Noah Zeichner. I'm uh, with the Bezos Scholars Program, and I'm a theory of knowledge teacher in Seattle, Washington, <laughs> in Ivy School. So the, the headaches of uh, TLK essays, um, I understand completely, but it's a good, it's a good headache. Um, I have been reading um, recently, including an article in the New York Times a few days ago, um, references to resistance to international education here, uh, some in the state legislatures, um, uh, criticisms that call IB um, un-American, uh, holding true to the UN agenda, and, and other uh, <laughs> phrases um, like that. So I'm curious to know, uh, in other countries that have IB programs, do you see similar resistance to uh, international education? I don't think it's an overwhelming resistance that will, will cause serious damage here in the United States, but I'm just curious what reaction to international education is internationally. No, I, I think quite the opposite to a large extent. I mean, we have schools in 138 countries, but a lot of those schools are private international schools. So, you know, we're not embedded in, in those countries. But there are a lot of countries, particularly in the Far East, countries like Indonesia, China, Singapore, Malaysia that actively embrace international education. They recognize for their countries to thrive economically um, in the global society we live in. Their students need to know and understand what's going on around the world. They need to have uh, an outwardly looking perspective and vision. So it is, no, we haven't come across it. it. It is something very particular, I think, the time, maybe, uh, this decade. Um, but I, I would like to say we have absolutely no connection with the UN. <laughs> we are not a UN-based organization. Not that we would be ashamed if we were, but, but we are totally independent, not-for-profit and all the rest of it. But no, it, it is, it's very interesting. Great. Let me just call on the next one, and then we'll get to you. Good afternoon. We'll go. go ahead. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Marge Minicosi. I've been in education most of my life. Right now, I live in Vero Beach, which is in Indian River County in Florida. And for the most part, it is a middle-income level um, school, dis- school district. Yeah, um, We happen to have the International Baccalaureate program there. I was very surprised to find that. Uh, coming from Long Island, New York, I tried to institute the program in a more affluent area. And uh, I was defeated on many grounds. Uh, one, one of the things that I understood the International Baccalaureate requires is community service 
which I think is an excellent thing for students to be involved in. Um, and I wanted to know, is this still in effect? And the other th thing that I, I thought was true, uh, and is it so, that once a student completes this program with its very stringent requirements, it would almost be a ticket to any college, any university. Very quickly, um, community service is a requirement for, for all our programs, absolutely. Um, and, and getting stronger, if anything. I think we need, there's some work we need to do on that, but it's very much a part of it. Um, and as for college entry, it varies. Um, you, certain courses, the higher level courses, gain college credit, which means you can skip a year, up, up to a year, I think. Um, so, so that's great. But each university has its own entry requirements, and each country has its own uh, entry requirements for its national system. So it is a good passport to university. It's recognized now by many countries, but it does vary. Hi, I'm Marita Fairbanks. I'm from Houston, and I happen to be a Duke alum and uh, interview for a Duke in the Houston area. And so as a result, I, I get to see a broad swath of people uh, interviewing, some of whom have no ability at all to even shake my hand and look me in the eyes. Those happen to be from some of the more underserved neighborhoods. And then, of course, I interview from private schools, et cetera. And I'm seeing this huge dichotomy between the knowledge and the abilities of these kids who are from uh, privileged neighborhoods and privileged schools, IB schools, and then the ones who are not. And um, the one difference I'm seeing is uh, kids who are coming from some of the experimental things that you alluded to, KIPP Academy and, and other places like that, where they really, the, the main difference I'm seeing is an expectation level right. that is different, right. and then support behind those expectations right. so these kids are actually achieving th those expectations. And I'm just curious as to whether any of you all are seeing across the country other bright lights like that regarding delivering some of the, the traits that you'd like to see in students. The answer to that is you bet, but not nearly enough. Um, there are both within the charter sector and within traditional public school districts an increasing number of schools that are taking even the poorest kids and, um, and getting them to the highest levels of achievement, focusing very much on college, um, taking responsibility not just for preparing them, but for making sure they get in the, the door judging themselves not by whether students get in the door but by whether they succeed which is something that's very uh, unheard of um, uh, in most schools but as i said while we've got wonderful evidence now that this is possible um, and uh, we don't have nearly enough and so the urgency that i and others like me around the country are feeling right now is how do we build a greater sense of urgency um, to make those kinds of schools the rule for all of our kids, not just for some. So um, our organization is addressing this issue in a somewhat different way. Uh, the IB program, the diploma program, is basically an upper division high school program. Most AP courses are taken in upper division uh, of high school. Uh, we have put together a coalition of 12 states which are going to pilot in all of these states a program that will use... Pro how shall I say this? We'll use instructional programs of the IB diploma type at the lower division level. And the idea is to prepare kids in the lower division in a very demanding program that provides lots of supports to the kids that Katie is talking about so that when they are finished with those programs, they can either go directly to a community college at the end of their sophomore year or go into a program like the AP program or the IB diploma program or their English equivalents when they are uh, in the upper division of high school. Uh, right now we have lots more kids taking AP courses than we used to, but we don't have a program in the lower division of high school to prepare them to succeed. If we succeed in this, we will, all over the country. But that's what we need. We need a very strong instructional program in the lower division to prepare these kids for the demanding programs in the upper division. 
but I doubt, that, I doubt if there's a single person on stage who doesn't resonate with what you say. Uh, you highlight what, what is the, one of the main facts. Uh, Farid Zakaria reminded us in the post-American world uh, that when, we, when it is said that America rates 17th in education and follow, falls behind nations like Cyprus, for instance, which mm -hmm. I remember was right above us, uh, the point he makes is that that's not to say that our whole education system is inferior. Actually, what we have is the best education coexisting with completely terrible education uh, and tolerating the, uh, the right. inequity of the results that inevitably right. follows. You know, if you, if you don't have some education when you're five, there's things you're not going to be able to learn when you're eight. And if there's things you don't learn when you're eight, there's things you're not going to be able to do when you're 13. Uh, and it's why one has to be serious about this going all the way back through it. Uh, and I think really that, that uh, you come from near the land of Kip, uh, and I think that Kip is one of the things that really taught many of us uh, that the way to solve this problem isn't to lower expectations to the point where no one's failure is highlighted. It is to raise expectations because that's the only way you give people the power of knowledge. To deprive people of the power of knowledge uh, and then tell them that that's all right, you know, later life will not kid them in that, in, in that regard. Uh, to have higher expectations and then the support, the stimulating teaching, uh, the, the, the long hours of support uh, that fall in behind that, that enable people to meet those expectations uh, with all that that means in self-esteem and forward um, um, movement. Someone told me that there is a ranking of the of the countries that treats uh, each U.S. state as its own nation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know if anyone knows exactly where to find it, but uh, but it's apparently fascinating because the states are not clustered right around 17. I mean, there are some quite that's, high that's and exactly some right. very very that's exactly low. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. So um, we're going to go here, but let's get the second microphone to this gentleman here. My name's Peter Westcott. Uh, I'm a local teacher, been in the classroom for 31 years. Over those years, I've seen quite a change, and one of the biggest has been in the last 10 or so years as we've had the standards and the testing that goes with it. What I've seen is schools sort of change, and we've doubled the amount of time on English and math. And initially, that sounds very good until you realize that we are in that process cutting out other things, such as art, civics, um, many of the other programs are now getting half or even being cut totally. I'm wondering if anyone wants to address, is that what kids need to know, or are we heading in the right direction or the wrong direction with that? Our civics expert? Well, you are right about what schools are doing. Half of our states no longer make civics and government a requirement for high school. Half of them. If, you know, to become a citizen in this country, if you come from another country, you have to pass, you have to pass a test asking, answering all kinds of questions about 75% of Americans can't pass that test. I, we are hopeless right now. That's the fact of the matter. And it, it, we shouldn't be teaching less. We should be teaching more of everything. I went to a great high school in New York City recently to see how they're doing it. It's called Democracy Prep. It's in Harlem. It's a public school. And I was dazzled. Those kids start at 7 in the morning, and they go till 5.30 at night, and they go to school on Saturdays, and they have a very short summer, and they work like little dogs on their schoolwork, and they're fabulous. They're enthused. They're with it, and they're really learning. But I think we just have to... Now, I don't know how many teachers are willing to do those hours. You tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Sorry. Would we? Okay. Well, we need to. <laughs> right here in the front. And I know we already have a microphone outstanding. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Abelson. I'm a writer and a filmmaker and deeply concerned about the quality of education in general in the country, but I'm with Justice O'Connor on civics education. Um, you know, returning civics education and history, for that matter, more aggressively to the classroom is obviously very important to the future of the country, but the people that can't answer the question about the three branches of government yeah. and the 101 other questions in the dozen or so major studies that have been done in the last 10 years, which are just jaw-dropping, are grown-ups. And just like it's difficult for you to deal with students whose parents don't read to them, I can't imagine how a kid is going to have the idea that being a serious citizen is a good idea if his parents aren't. And so my question is, what, if anything, do any of you do or think should be done to 
sort of spark a revolution of adult education, mm -hmm. adult civics education or adult education in general, or is that outside your purview? Well, I think that you're, you, it's not mine to answer. These are the experts, not me. But a high percentage of students who aren't doing well come from parents who don't do well and who don't know much and who don't care. And so how we're going to deal with that, I'm not altogether sure. Any ideas? Are there examples of colleges, um, community colleges or four-year colleges, um, that, are, that really have a proven, a proven track record, a KIPP-like track record of taking 25-year-olds and 35-year-olds and turning them into college graduates of some kind? That sure be great. There are, and there's many different kinds. You'd find them everywhere. Uh, one of the things that, that I was interested in when I went to Duke, you know, Duke is right next to this thing called the Research Triangle. Uh, research Triangle is a job magnet. Uh, yeah. And uh, yes. when companies decide where to move, the first thing they want to know is, uh, do you have the people there who could do the kind of work we need? Uh, and so we always had people from our community college traveled with, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, business teams from the state, uh, met with executives, designed programs, and then you add other programs onto the side. Because it's not, it's not quite enough to train somebody with the skills to get the job, though I think that that really helps, is extraordinarily important to a lot of people. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I don't know if you know the amazing truth that I am actually an English teacher. Uh, and uh, I was once asked to give a poetry reading at Durham Tech. This is the community college. There were about 200 people who came to it because they enjoyed it, you know? Uh, and actually, you, 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 you don't want to have so narrow an idea, so instrumental an idea of education that you deprive people of the, of the pleasures, and as I say, the powers. I also mean the civic powers. Mark? There is a striking contrast between what we're doing right now in the United States and what the countries with the best education records do with respect to the issues we're discussing right now. We now have, and thank God we do, some rather good standards uh, for English and for mathematics coming out of the Common Core state standards effort. That's the two subjects you were talking about. There is some talk of extending that effort to science in the years ahead. But if you look at what happens in high schools across the United States, according to state policy, they typically require that students have so many years of this and so many years of that in a fairly narrow core curriculum. It is almost never stipulated what they need to achieve in those subjects. It is entirely time determined. When you ask students in those, in those high schools what they have to do to go to college, and most of them are planning to go to a community college, what they will tell you is, I have to get a passing grade in those core courses stipulated by the state to get a diploma. When you ask them what they have to do to get a passing grade, they tell you they have to show up most of the time. When you ask them whether it makes any difference what they've learned, the answer is no. Now, if you compare that to the countries that we have studied around the world, there is no comparison. Is that which countries are you thinking? Uh, uh, the countries where we, we <coughs> countries we have that come to the top of most of the lists are the Scandinavian countries taken as a whole. Excuse me, the Netherlands and and uh, and Belgium, particularly in mathematics, Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, shortly all of Eastern China, uh, Singapore, Australia and New Zealand, particularly in English, um, th and Canada. There are a few others in particular areas, but that list is a pretty good representative list. When you look at what happens in most of those countries, they define a core high school curriculum. But it's not defined by time in the seat. It's defined by achievement. And most of these countries have what, you call a, what they call a qualification system. What that means is that you can't go on to the next stage either of work or of your education until you show and unless you show that you are qualified, which means that with respect to the standard core curriculum, you need to get particular grades and particular courses to go on. So guess what? Kids do that because they understand the connection between what they do in school and what their dream is. In this country, they don't see a connection except the kids going to a selective college, the Dukes of the world, because the way we've set our system up for most of the kids, the kids who are going to community colleges, it makes absolutely no difference whether you get a D or whether you get an A. So there's no point. This country is almost unique in that respect. 
we've taken the whole element of student motivation out of high school, except for the kids who believe they're going to a selective college, fewer than 15%. We're getting exactly what we deserve. Um, I'm Diane Holly, and I'm from the illustrious state of Arizona, which is now rated 51st. We have Puerto Rico, which is in front of us. So you can't get lower than that. However, we do have a shining light in Arizona. We have many problems there. And one of our shining lights is the Justice's um, School of Law, the only school of law that has been named after a woman outside of William and Mary. So I would like to ask the Justice, what do you see that you would like to have coming out of your law school that is not in any other law school? Oh, goodness, I don't even know. I just want all superstars is what I want. <laughs> and I want them to care and to care about being decent people when they practice law, not just out there for the money, but trying to help people and help in the communities and do some good with their legal training. Uh, do work worth doing and do it well. That's what I want to see. And I hope they can get work uh, is pretty hard to come by these days for those graduates. Nobody thinks they need a lawyer anymore. <laughs> uh, we have a question here in the second row, uh, and then we'll go back there, and th these will be our last two, unfortunately. Hi, um, my name is Miriam Million, and I'm here with the Bezos Scholars Program, and um, I go to the preschool UCSD in San Diego, California, and um, it's a charter school from grades 6 through 12, and I wanted to respond about what you were saying about the school in Harlem, and um, what our school is all about is about equitability and opportunity for low-income students um, so that we all come from, we have 100% of students eligible for free lunch, and all of us have, don't have parents who have ever been to college, neither of our parents. Um, so what I just wanted to respond saying that we have a longer school year. We go from um, August to July. We just got out on July 1st. Mm -hmm. And we're not a year-round school. So we only have um, the average vacation. Every, every time I tell someone that we, we go from that long, they're like, are you year-round school? And we're not. But um, our summer is shorter, and um, our days are longer. We start at 8 o'clock in the morning, and normally we get out at 4, but if you go to after-school programs, it's 5.30. So, okay. And what I wanted to say was about our teachers, and the whole atmosphere of the school is based on if people believe in you and you're given the right tools no matter where you come from and what economic background you come from, you can succeed. So. I just want to say that. I, I, I would just add, I, I do think that, that the justice's point about finding people who can, finding teachers who can do these long hours yeah. is yeah. is a real challenge because yeah, teaching is a harder job than it a lot hard. of jobs. When, I, when I'm having a hard hour, I get a cup of coffee and read a blog or a newspaper, and teachers don't get to do that. No. Um, and um, so I think one of the things, as we, I hope we see more schools like yours, which are really doing well, I do think it's going to be a challenge to find the core of teachers to but do David, it. David, one thing you should know is that there there are things you can do about that. You can bring some of your teachers in at 8 and some of them in at 10. Kids have a longer school day. Teachers don't necessarily. So there, there are schools that are finding ways to have a longer day mm -hmm. without necessarily mm -hmm. creating the job from mm -hmm. hell for mm -hmm. a teacher. Yes. It costs money, right? No. It actually costs exactly the same it thing. It does? Yeah. If you do the math right, you can figure it out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Because <laughs> he's weak at the basics. <laughs> uh, last question here. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Andrew Oros, and I teach international politics at, at Washington College, a small liberal arts college. Um, my question, in short, is: Do all kids need to know the same thing? And if I can just expand on that a, a little bit, um, in some countries, and I think in our country in the past, there was a history of sort of vocational training or different tracks of training. And I think that that has been associated in the past with uh, giving uh, people who had less, less. So I think that there is, there is that problem. But, but if that kind of issue could be addressed, do you think that kids that achieve more should be expected to do more and kids that achieve less should, should be given training that might let them find jobs that you know, are appropriate to their ability level? My answer to your question is yes and no. <laughs> it, it, and I mean, it, 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 I mean that in the following way. 
we're in a, we live in a country right now in which it is impossible in many states to get a job as an automobile maintenance and repair technician in a dealership without a two-year degree from a community college. That's the same country in which most economists say that if you don't have two years of education beyond high school, you simply can't support a family of four above the poverty line. I would argue that that means that every kid in this country has got to be educated well enough to have a very high probability of success in our country's community colleges. That's the base. Now, contrast that with where we are now. Where we are now is that the majority of kids leave our high schools with an eighth or at the most ninth grade level of literacy. Now, presumably the community college is teaching at a 13th grade level of literacy. So you either believe that our kids have acquired five years' worth of education between spring of one year and the fall of the same year, or you believe there's a five-year gap. So bringing our kids up to the point where they can succeed in the first year of a community college program is a giant task. And I, to me, it's, it is the central task. Now, what I meant by no is that th there are folks out there now who think all of our kids need to know algebra too. The studies that have been done of this show that fewer than 5% of the people in our workforce will ever use Algebra 2 in the work that they do. Algebra 2 is used as a screen for college entrance in the same way that Latin was 100 years ago. You don't need it. Some kids need it. Most don't. The highest performing countries in the world, and I have in particular Singapore in mind, do not require all their kids. <coughs> have Algebra 2. They are sensi sensible enough to recognize that in the upper division of high school, the math that kids get ought to correspond to, in a broad way, what they plan to do with their lives, right? If only 5% need Algebra 2, there is no reason to put 100% of our kids through the hell of learning it. Algebra 2 is a prelude to the calculus. That's the only reason for it. A lot of other kids need statistics and probability. And a lot of other kids need a different kind of math entirely. In my mind, those are the terms in which we should be thinking, but we're not thinking that way. For the most part, we're saying what do all kids need to know by the end of 12th grade. The rest of the world makes a distinction at the end of what we think of as the sophomore year in high school. Katie gets the last word. Let me, if I could, add two points. Um, one, what Mark said is not wrong about the use of Algebra 2, but he said two things. One, that it's not used by 95% of the workforce, but two, that it continues to be used as a screen for admission to four-year colleges. As long as that is true, that has to be a goal for all kids. Number two, one of the things we have to remember is when you said, you know, if we could just take care of the poor kids or kids of color are more likely to get in that problem, right? More likely to get less. I'll tell you, we have tried to do that as a country. We have tried over and over. We call it different things. We name it different things. We try to name it career instead of job. No matter what we try, when, when not all but just some kids get taught something, it's always always, always disproportionately the poor kids, the kids of color, the immigrant kids who do not get taught it. So we have to be very, very careful about, uh, about that choice, what's for all, what's for some, given our history as a country. Thank you all. Thanks for the great questions, and thank you to our panelists.